Hot, hot, hot. Yep, that pretty much sums it up for most of us this August. Hello, I'm Mark Tomasetti, back with you this month for another Flight Test Safety Podcast episode. Hope you enjoyed part one of Battle of the X-Pilots last month. Pigpen and I will be back with more episodes later in the year. Also, if you happen to read this month's Flight Test Safety Fact, you know that I sent in my TurboTalk column from the North Atlantic, where the temperatures were refreshing 8 degrees C or 46 degrees Fahrenheit. I traveled the English Channel, the North Atlantic, the Norwegian Sea, and the Baltic on a cruise that visited France, Iceland, Norway, and Denmark. In my column, I talked about the shipboard mustard drill and my thoughts and observations about that. I'll let you go read it for yourself if you haven't already, but consider this. How many times has someone briefed you on safety equipment or procedures that you might have to use and how much you really thought about them? You know, the standard commercial airline safety brief or maybe the safety brief before getting on a thrill ride. If the unthinkable happened, would you have been ready? So check out the flight test safety fact for this and more. And if you're wondering, no, I didn't think about safety the whole time I was on vacation. I actually enjoyed some truly breathtaking sights and experiences as well. It's always great to add to your list of wow moments, and there were several on that trip. But asking yourself if you are prepared for the unthinkable is a great lead-in for this month's focus topic. So imagine you're on a ship, not like the one I was on with pools and a spa and incredible dining. Imagine you're in a jet on a big gray ship in the middle of the ocean, getting ready for a catapult shot. Just a walk in the park for a seasoned naval aviator like you, until... Today, I am joined on the podcast by an old Marine friend, Marty Rollinger. Uh, Rollo, thanks for joining us today. And if you could start off with just giving our listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. I uh, joined the Marine Corps in the early 1980s. I was privileged enough to fly the uh, F-4 Phantom for a couple of years out of Hawaii and the Western Pacific. Transitioned to the Hornet where I was stationed in Beaufort, South Carolina with uh, Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 312. Um, I ended up doing a full career as a, as a Marine and uh, retired, and uh, currently am a business aviator flying uh, the So Falcon business jet uh, for a private company. Okay, great. All right, so I, I want to take you back to November of 1992, out on the high seas on a carrier for a sortie you had in an F-18 that uh, became a little bit interesting. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? You bet. Uh, December, excuse me, November uh, 17th, uh, 1992, uh, our Marine Squadron was deployed with a Navy carrier air wing on the USS uh, Theodore Roosevelt. First time a Marine Squadron had gone on a carrier in a number of years. We were out learning lessons with them. We'd already CQ'd or carrier qualified. This was uh, uh, the COM2X, and i sorry, I don't know what that stands for anymore, but that's the acronym that sticks in my mind, an exercise you do before going on cruise. And this was my third or fourth day on the ship. I'd already uh, refreshed at the carrier qualification, and uh, my squadron CO and I were uh, scheduled to go very late afternoon, early evening flight, uh, daytime launch, but a nighttime recovery. The, the ship was north of Puerto Rico, and if I remember right, there's a deep trench there. I remember because uh, if, the, if the plane had been lost, we would have never got it back. It would have been so deep. And I was uh, taxiing up to catapult number two, 
the jet blast deflector went up in front of me. A Tomcat launched off. And, of course, while he's launching, he's an afterburner, and there's a ton of turbulence that comes over that jet blast deflector. And my uh, airplane is bouncing up and down. And <clears throat> then he launches. The jet blast deflector goes down. I take um, my spot on the catapult track number two. That is the forward catapult on the port side or left side of the ship there as it travels forward. That doesn't really matter for this scenario. But um, I, I hook up. I wipe out the cockpit. I go to full power like I'm supposed to uh, salute. And then they fire the gun. They fire the catapult. And away I go. At the end of the catapult stroke, even before I leave the, the bow of the front end of the ship, I hear stall tone. I don't recognize that it's stall tone necessarily. I just recognize something's out of the order. It's tone. And then as I, you know, split second later, the airplane pitches over and luckily it was daytime. I had a face full of water in the windscreen and I realized this is abnormal time to run through my procedures, which was rotate the airplane to uh, a certain attitude. Normally, the catapult stroke, uh, that our hands are off the stick. It's all just, hey, go along for the ride. But I quickly uh, grabbed the stick and put it in my lap. I went to full power. <clears throat> I was next to, to jettison the stores, and I had to look down to jettison the stores to find the jettison button. And as I did, I realized that water is getting really close. I have to eject. And I got into position and realized, wait a minute, no, I don't. Uh, uh, the water, it hasn't gotten any closer. And, um, I just left those afterburners in uh, and flew away and took that airplane up to uh, 15,000 feet. And along the way, the, the tower boss, um, who tended to be very gruff, was like, 330, have you got a problem? And uh, I knew I had a problem, but I didn't know what. So that's the summary of the incident itself. Okay. So so when that happened, obviously, you know, as a, a military pilot, you had done emergency procedures training both, you know, from written exams to stuff in the simulator. Was that event something that you had seen, were aware of, or had prepared for? No, not that event. Uh, typically, uh, for the ship, you would train to losing an engine, because, of course, the Hornet's a two-engine airplane, so we would train to losing an engine on the catapult stroke. Or, God forbid, a cold cat, where the catapult dumps you off at a, at a slower speed than you're supposed to be uh, for whatever reason. And, and um, there's procedures to handle both of those events, but not this uh, angle of attack problem where the airplane thinks, hey, I'm stalling and I need to push the nose over. Right. And then you mentioned you know, thinking about ejecting, but you, were, you decided not to because, as you said, the the water that had been getting closer all of a sudden stopped getting closer. You know, before going into this, I think, you know, everybody who flies ejection seat aircraft has, in addition to, to what the emergency procedures prescribe, uh, like for a spin, as an example, at a certain altitude, depending on which airplane you're in, it says if, if you haven't regained control by that point, eject. But for something like you had, you know, settle off the catapult, there is, as long as, as far as I can remember for the F-18, there's nothing that says at some height above the water, eject. So how did your personal ejection criteria sort of play into your decision process? Yeah, good, good question. Um, at, at that point, it was 
more or less instinctive that, uh, you know, if you are going to hit the water, it's time to get out. And uh, I was actually happy that I was able to make that decision. And in my mind, I made the decision, hey, I need to get out and started to get in position and then realized, no, I really don't. I've leveled off. And um, thankfully, I didn't pull that handle and, and leave. I, I'm sure it would have worked just fine. But again, we wouldn't have got the airplane back. Nobody would have ever known what caused it. Right. Okay. And you mentioned the fact that you think the fact that this was in daytime made a big difference uh, because you could see what was happening. Can you talk about, you know, was the, the seat of the pants stuff that you were feeling jiving with what you were seeing? Yes. Okay. Um, and that's a great comment. Uh, if it had been nighttime, I would have um, hit the water, I'm sure, because I would have processed what's going on that much slower and there just isn't time. The deck is only 65 feet above the water. Um, and it was the fact that, that my windshield filled with the view of the ocean that caused me to instinctively grab the stick and pull back. If that had been nighttime, looking through a HUD, dark sky, dark water, I would have had to process, did I just have a HUD failure or what? what's going on? And then by then it might have been a splash. So um, I'm very thankful it happened when it did. Right. Okay, so now your airplane's starting to make its way higher and higher away from the ocean, and you've got to do some assessing of what you ha what just happened and what you have. So talk about now as you're climbing away, what is the airplane telling you, and what is your thought process on what to do next? Yeah, my heart's pounding, um, and I, I went to what I consider a safe altitude, 15,000 feet roughly, just up above the ship. I was going to keep the ship in sight, and I had a mission that day. I think um, I don't remember what the mission was anymore, and I was going to be joined by my uh, wingman. Um, and he did join up and uh, check me over, but I, I was just stayed at a, a, a slow speed, 250 knots, and um, decided to do a controllability check. That's the right thing to do. It's described in our F-18 textbook, if you will. The, we know it as a NATOPS, of course, uh, for that aircraft. And so I slowed down and, and uh, you know, assessed the flying qualities of the airplane. I wasn't a test pilot at that point in time, but I knew how to roll and pitch and yaw and make sure everything <laughs> seemed okay. And, you know, it was kind of unexplained. Um, at that point, the problem had fixed itself, and we'll talk more about that later, I think. But I, I slowed down to approach speed. It worked. And then I was, of course, in communication with the ship, said I wanted to come right back. And, and once they had a clear deck, I did a precautionary landing. Okay. And so this, I think, is a, an interesting point. So as you're climbing away, you've had this unknown thing occur, scares you. But as you're climbing away now, you don't, you no longer have any uh, caution or warning lights, correct? Correct. And I don't believe we, I ever had any at the time. I don't think uh, the airplane in its current very mat configuration did a cross-check of the AOA. Okay. So climbing away, and now you're doing your controllability checks, and the airplane seems to be behaving as normal. Of course, um, you have the option at that point to you know, continue on with the mission of the day or go back to the ship and try to figure out what happened. So let's talk just a little bit more on what, what drove you to choose uh, the latter rather than the former. Uh, there was clearly, in my mind, clearly something had occurred abnormal um, with the airplane, uh, and it needed to be rectified before we went out and, and uh, learned more about it, if you 
will that, that may be in the form of catastrophe. So, okay. Um, and you mentioned, you know, controllability checks. You talked about what you did, and and those are, like you said, those are outlined in uh, the aircraft's flight manual. But uh, and and I'm guessing that probably somewhere along in your simulator training, you had been forced to, you know, demonstrate a controllability check. Uh, as you were actually having to do it for real, what what were you looking for? So what things were you sort of keyed on to look for as you were doing all those maneuvers to see if you could at least get yourself to a sort of landing configuration that would be comfortable? Yeah, great question. I was making sure the airplane was doing what I asked of it. So as I slowed down, I made sure I still had pitch control. Uh, I made sure I still had roll control if the airplane was doing what I asked it to do. Um, and the same thing with the rudders, just make sure that it wasn't going to all of a sudden spontaneously do something unexpected. Okay, let's follow the thread a little bit more on you know, some of your simulator training beforehand. And, and one of the things that we talked about in advance of this discussion was, you know, you made a comment about being creative in your sim training. So do you think, uh, given the sim training you had done in the Hornet up until that point in time, was there something after that event that you would go tell people, hey, for all of you who are going to operate in a shipboard environment, you want to go practice this in the sim this way? That's a good question. The um, I can't I, I say not necessarily. I would recommend to people, and I still do today, uh, in the F-18 simulator, first of all, we had the simulators right on base. So they were, you could go there routinely, where now in, in my world, we don't get to go to the simulators just whenever we want. You know, we have a scheduled time every six months to a right. year. Um, but back then, they, they literally had a, um, um, you could in, simulate failures, but then they would have, uh, I forget what they call them, battle damage failures. And the instant instructor could just hit a button for battle damage one, and they'd be unrelated systems that would fail. And um, so they were challenging. They weren't necessarily what you expect in the civilian world, where one thing leads to another thing. They'd be unrelated because they're simulating enemy shrapnel taking out different systems at different times. So. Right. right. All right, so you get the airplane back on deck, uh, you turn it over to maintenance. I mean, there's no accident, right? There's no, uh, there's nothing that would necessarily warrant uh, a, <clears throat> a mishap-type response. But you give the airplane to maintenance, right, and so that they can go start looking at what happened and you describe what you saw. So, so what transpires now is people try to figure out what happened with your airplane. We'll pick it up with Rolo there next month and find out what happened after he got the aircraft back aboard the ship. You know, usually we think about the part of flight test that focuses on testing new things and new aircraft, but there is also the part that addresses fixing new things we find wrong with old aircraft. And unfortunately, it usually takes an unthinkable event to start that process. And we'll talk a little bit about that in part two. I hope to see some of you at the Society of Experimental Test Pilots annual symposium and banquet next month. Registration is open for that, and as usual, there's a great lineup of presentations and events. Find out more at www.sctp.org or in the link in the podcast description. That'll wrap us up for this month. Stay cool, watch out for those school buses, and until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance on the web at www.time2climb.com.